navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. All right, so welcome everybody uh, to today's episode. And today I'm very excited to talk about a topic that doesn't get a lot of attention, uh, yet is so important in the world of personal injury litigation, and that is insurance coverage. Now, if you're hearing that phrase for the first time, uh, that may not be surprising to me, but you probably have heard it. And what insurance coverage relates to is that most of the time, probably 99% of the time in a personal injury case, you are dealing with insurance. Someone gets injured, they bring a lawsuit against an entity. Hopefully that entity has insurance that will help uh, cover the uh, expenses of counsel and pay to compensate an individual uh, in the event that they're entitled to compensation. But that's where we run into a lot of issues. Many of you, I'm sure, have come across situations where either there's no insurance or insurance is disclaimed or there's multiple parties and they're pointing fingers at each other saying, it's not my insurance policy, it's their insurance policy. And generally, when you think about insurance coverage, attorneys, attorneys who specialize in this area, you think about it on the defense side. Uh, you think about big defense firm who have insurance coverage counsel because, frankly, they're the ones representing all the businesses that have these insurance policies at play. But what I've learned over the last couple of decades as a plaintiff is the importance of having an insurance coverage expert available to you. Because as a plaintiff, we need to know what the issues are, if there's a disclaimer, if there's uh, adversaries, uh, insurance pointing fingers at each other so that we can sort through the maze and help get to the bottom of it and get our cases resolved. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And to, to have the best person to talk about it, I brought in one of New York State's top insurance coverage council attorneys, Rosa Feeney. And I'm pleased to announce, some of you may have heard, uh, that Rosa has now joined Smiley and Smiley as a partner. And I'm just so thrilled that she's joined us. I've known Rosa probably for 20, 25 years and finally convinced her to come over and, uh, and work with me. So uh, Rosa Feeney is joining us today and welcome to the podcast, Rosa. Thank you, Andrew. I'm so happy to be on the Mentor ESQ, and uh, and I'm thrilled to be part of the Smiley family and the Smiley team. So thank you for that. Yeah, we're we're all super excited. And Rosa, you and I have worked together, um, like I said, for the last couple of decades. And it's kind of fun how I first met you. I remember sitting in my office, and my dad comes walking in, and he's holding a New York Law Journal. He says, I just read this article and I remember there was a picture of you on it, you know, when they have uh, articles from lawyers that sometimes have a little picture. He's like, this attorney, Rosa Feeney, she just wrote this article and I don't even remember what the issue was, but it clearly dealt with an insurance coverage issue that as plaintiffs we were dealing with. And he said, maybe just give her a call. Maybe she can help us out. I said, all right, can't hurt. So I called you up, Rosa, and... The rest is history, as they say. Since that time, we've worked together on numerous cases. Uh, you've helped me 
not only come up with viable claims and theories that I didn't know existed to pursuing cases and finding coverage that I didn't know existed, but just how to navigate uh, this morass that we run into. And uh, so now instead of having to call you uh, as an outside counsel, now I got you on my speed dial, so to speak, um, okay. which is just super exciting. So would you mind sharing a little bit of your background to give us all an idea of how it is you you fell into this area of practice, which is kind of unique, uh, and uh, and how you got into it, and to get to the point where you are now, where you're you're such a renowned expert in this field. Yeah, well, I I, I graduated from Cardozo School of Law, and uh, my first internship was actually with Hirschfeld and Rubin, and um, at Hirschfeld and Rubin, I was introduced. I mean, they're they're an international law firm in Manhattan, but they're based in Manhattan. But I was introduced to torts negligence defense, right? So I worked as an intern for somebody that did products liability, motor vehicle products liability. Then when I graduated from law school, I got a job at Amity, Demers, and McManus, right? Again, they were a defense firm. So again, a negligence defense firm. And I remember one day sitting at my desk, you know, doing whatever I was doing. And one of the partners comes in and he hands me this case and he says see what you can do with this and that was my first coverage case and it was an sum case i'll never forget uninsured underinsured motorist case and it was instant love i knew that that was what i wanted to do it was very analytical it was just right up my alley so they started giving me more cases because i liked it and i was having success with it so they started giving me this and while at amity's office I was exposed to everything from auto to homeowners to business policies to construction policies. I mean, everything. So after a while, I, I went out on my own. I left. I, I joined up with a couple of partners and we actually did personal injury at that time. And we did insurance and we did defense. And um, and we continued to do that. And that's when I met you, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> I was out on my own and uh, I remember that phone call <laughs> and uh, you and I were able to navigate that case without even uh, an action, right? It was just a really well-crafted letter that we put together and um, and it was a late notice. I remember it was a late notice wow. case, disclaimed on late notice, and uh, we were able to, uh, to navigate through that and had a good result, I remember, on that case. Um, and then that just seemed to continue. And then... As time went on, I started working with other firms and I worked very closely uh, with Louis Joe's Avalon Avilas, a shout out to them. And um, they, you know, I worked very closely with all the attorneys there, the coverage attorneys, the non-coverage attorneys, because coverage was really interwound in so many areas. You know, it's not just defense work or or plaintiff's work. It's really, I mean, there's life insurance cases. There's all kinds of property cases that come on, you know, floods, um, uh, fires, um, you know, just issues with businesses that don't, that their insurance isn't, isn't kicking in, isn't covering them, or isn't defending them, you know, in cases. So I had a lot of success with that. And one of the things that I noticed as I was working there, every time a case would come in and it would be a policyholder case. So it would be, you know, somebody that had a problem with their insurance against their insurance company. I always volunteered. I always navigated myself and was attracted to those cases. So, you know, I think that the connection with you was, I said, you know, it's perfect because I've always wanted to do the plaintiff side of it and the policyholder side of it. And um, and really just it, it's just very fulfilling, 
You know, when you get coverage for somebody that you know is an innocent, really an innocent bystander in the whole thing in most circumstances, and now they're caught up in this coverage situation. So here we are, and now we're going to be really representing the plaintiffs and uh, and the policyholders, hopefully into the future. So, and this is unique, right? I mean, I've been doing this a long time, and whenever you hear of coverage counsel, meaning a lawyer who specializes in reading through hundreds of pages of insurance policies and knowing the law and knowing how to apply it to the facts. It's very um, detailed, difficult stuff. Um, I've never heard of a plaintiff's firm having a coverage counsel as part of the firm. Have you? I mean, is this something new? Are we breaking ground here by you becoming a plaintiff's lawyer? Well, I think that in, in many other states, aside from New York, many plaintiff's firms have coverage counsel because the laws are different in some of those other states. And New York has a lot of restrictions when it comes to what plaintiffs can do. So for that reason, I think it's not as popular. Um, I do, you know, there are people who do um, like property damage and, and, and personal injury case, uh, excuse me, property damage coverage, I should say, um, on the plaintiff side. But um, I honestly don't know many people who do, you know, what I'm doing now and and representing the policyholder. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to kind of explain, because I'm not sure how clear it is, like when we say policyholder coverage versus, um, versus you know, plaintiff coverage, what do we mean by that? So, we're, we're talking about policyholder coverage. I'm talking about somebody who has an insurance policy and for whatever reason, their carrier says they're not going to cover them or they're only going to partially cover them or there's some kind of a problem with the insurance. And that's policyholders. And that can be anything. That can be, again, like I said, like a fire or a flood or it can be somebody's insurance company just isn't covering them. They're being sued and the insurance company says, I'm not covering you or I'm only going to partially cover you or... And, and, you know, that's policyholder coverage. So when we talk about plaintiff coverage, what I'm referring to is coverage to assist plaintiffs and plaintiff's attorneys navigate through all the insurance issues that come up in their cases. And that's what you and I have been doing for years, right? And, and you, your firm, and were always very proactive with that. I felt that, you know, you really were involved early on in the case. You noticed something was going on. You reached out to me. And in every single case that we've ever handled together, we've never had to file suit. Yeah. Never. We've always gotten it resolved. And I think that's because they do, they, you did call me early and we were able to to get to the bottom of the case before we, we, we were dealt with unwinding what had occurred, um, we got ahead of it. So, you know, I think in that respect, it is important for, you know, plaintiff's firms to kind of think about it when they need something like that to really reach out because it can really prevent a lot of problems down the road. Absolutely. And I have found that there's really sort of a couple of different ways that your skill set has helped our firm in plaintiff's actions. The first is before bringing a lawsuit, trying to explore possible tort feasors and seeing whether coverage would apply in this situation if it's something a little different. I'm going to give an example of a case that you helped us successfully resolve. And I think it's important for plaintiff's lawyers, you need to think outside of the box. And here's a good example of a case you may pass up on that we took and with Rose's help got a very good result. The fact pattern is briefly as follows. Um, grandpa owns the house. Grandpa's adult son 
brings his two-year-old uh, to the house uh, to visit and stay over the night. Grandpa's adult son is in the basement working out in the basement home gym on a leg press and keeping an eye at the same time on his toddler, the two-year-old, hanging out down there. While he's on the leg press, the toddler comes over and sticks his finger in a hole on the leg press. And as the press comes down, uh, his finger gets cut off. So really bad injury, young child, uh, index finger, the whole top of the finger is gone from like the knuckle up. Uh, they couldn't save it. And so the uh, an attorney, a referring attorney said, can I run this by you? He says, there's got to be, I'm wondering if there's a products case. Uh, I ran it by some other lawyers. They didn't think there was one. What do you think? So I looked into it and there was no product liability case. Uh, the short answer is there was warnings all over it saying, keep small children away, keep fingers out of holes, you know, things like that. So there was no product case. They warned properly. But then I started thinking, hmm, I wonder if grandpa's homeowner's insurance would cover this. I wonder if that's that's a way to work. I was like, well, would the, would, the, would the father of the young child be willing to bring a lawsuit against his father? Or would it be the kid's mom who brings it? Are they together? How does this all work? Well, I said, I need to call Rosa because this clearly becomes a coverage issue. And I said, Rosa, this homeowners, would this cover this? I know there's some exclusions when there's family members and here we've got three layers of family members and whose house is it? And sure enough, we get the policies. Rosa looks through it. She says, I think you can make something here. So um, so we do it. And then we serve notice. And then we don't hear much for a while. Rosa says, sit tight, sit tight. They only have a certain amount of time to disclaim. And if they don't, even if the policy doesn't apply, it may come in because they don't disclaim on time. So we're watching the clock and we're working it. Uh, long story short, we got coverage. It was a million dollar policy that applied and we were able to get the case resolved for pretty close to the policy ultimately. So that's a great example of everybody who would think of that case was saying, oh, where's the negligence? Oh, it's his dad. Oh, there's no products case. There's nothing here. But if you start thinking about where else could there be coverage, what could cover it? That's where a coverage specialist like Rosa has proven invaluable uh, to my firm. So that's one example. Another example is labor law, construction accident cases. One of the things that you know if you've handled a, a construction accident case is you usually have more than one defendant. Uh, you've probably heard my CLEs on labor law and we talk about uh, strict liability and owners and general contractors and subcontractors. Well, what I've come to learn is that on the defense side, on those cases, there's something called loss transfer. They want to say, hey, we don't want to have to pay for this out of our insurance policy. Maybe one of the other defendants based on our contracts will cover it. And what happens a lot, and I hear this from a lot of colleagues uh, on the plaintiff and defense side, is that everybody wants to get these cases resolved, but no one can agree on which policy is going to pay. And everyone's saying, yeah, it's a viable case. Yeah, it's worth X dollars. Yeah, this and that. But this defendant needs to pay. And that defense saying, no, that defendant needs to pay. That's when I get Rosa on the phone. And that's when we, you know, you're entitled, and Rosa can talk about this, to get, and you must get, all insurance policies applicable from the defendants in your case, not just a disclosure of the policy limits, the actual policies. And then you get them, and then you read through it, 
And as a plaintiff, you roll up your sleeves and you start telling everybody, no, no, this is your strong point. You need to argue this. You have to get in the mix because if you sit back, nothing gets resolved. So those are two really big areas that I think coverage counsel brings value to plaintiffs. But Rosa, why don't you give us some thoughts on where you think plaintiffs are, you know, missing out on opportunities or perhaps not exploring coverage as they should uh, and how coverage counsel can really help plaintiffs uh, from day one all the way up until, you know, the eve of trial and even afterwards. Right. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that is pointed out by the case that we first handled, that one that you just gave the example, but that was actually the second case we handled together, is that you caught it early. So what happened in that case? You wanted to send letters and you did, and then you wanted to follow up. And I said, no, don't do anything. Because if time lapses, that could go to your benefit in certain circumstances. So that is one, one um, example of when coverage counsel would be useful to somebody at the very beginning of the case. Um, I think that with construction litigation, construction litigation is fraught with coverage. So, you know, you know, Andrew, you've handled plenty of them where you have these construction cases and you start your case. And like you said, everybody wants to resolve it and agrees, okay, this is this is a labor law case. This is a, you know, a fall from a scaffold. We know we have liability. We have to resolve this. And then the entire case goes sidewards because there's a coverage dispute and the coverage dispute takes years to resolve. Um, and so you wanna get ahead of that. And there are ways to get ahead of that and, and be proactive as a plaintiff to get those things resolved. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is about getting all the policies. So, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm hoping to do a CLE soon on this, but is the Comprehensive Insurance Disclosure Act. And that act passed in the beginning of last year. And that act gives a plaintiff the right to get copies of these policies and to, and there's a bunch of information that they're entitled to under the statute and to enforce it. Right. And it seems to me that what's happening is that the council really aren't enforcing it. They're still accepting the old, um, you know, the declaration page or just a, a statement saying how much coverage there is. I mean, you were always entitled to a copy of the policies, but it was probably very rarely exchanged. Um, I think in the construction context, they're probably more frequently exchanged because there was always problems with the policies. Um but that's one of the areas that I think that plaintiffs should pursue. And if you can get those policies, there's a 90 day limit. They're supposed to provide those policies within 90 days of the answer. So, you know, you don't wanna wait. You wanna get these policies early. You wanna start the analysis early of coverage. And, you know, one of the things that, that really surprises me, right, is not just not just construction litigation. You're talking about really a, all, all tort litigation. The insurance carriers have their coverage counsel at the ready, right? I was one of them for how many years? And they just call you, they ask your opinion on something, and, and you sometimes you prepare disclaimers, whatever you would do. The defendants have their coverage attorneys. Most of the times they're on staff, they're, they're, uh, they're attorneys that are in-house, uh, in right? So same thing, I was in-house. I have attorneys coming to me all the time and saying, hey, you know what, there's no coverage for the co-defendant here. What are we going to do? There's no coverage for my client here. What are we going to do? The only one without coverage counsel is the plaintiff. So it, it's just, it's not a big leap 
to say that plaintiffs should have coverage counsel to help them navigate through these things. And, you know, just like you wouldn't handle a case without a medical expert to, to prove your medical damages, it's, it's the same thing. You're hiring a specialist to help you navigate through and get the best recovery for your client. Um, you know, it's part of the expenses of the case. That's what I tell my, my plaintiff colleagues. You know, it's part of the expense, just like you, you'd hire another specialist, right? So I think that that's something that plaintiffs really need to think about more often. Um, I think a lot of plaintiffs only think, oh, the only time I'm going to hire a coverage lawyer is if there's bad faith. But that's not the only time you hire a coverage lawyer. Um, you know, the coverage lawyers should be really enlisted early on, or at least having somebody that they can turn to and go, hey, you know what, Rosa, what, what do you think about this? Um, and I think that that's something that's important. Now, one of the other things I was going to say is, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that I see that plaintiff's counsel, um, you know, I kind of, you know, that they miss is they miss the extent of coverage, right? So they're, they're missing that there could be other policies out there. And like you said, you and I have said, we analyzed in the beginning, what kind of policies am I looking at, right? So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So let's just say, let's go to the simple example. There's a, an auto case where, you know, unfortunately, you know, my son's involved in an auto accident and he's operating his own car and he has a $25,000 policy, which is the, you know, the, the minimum limit in New York state because he's a young kid and he can't afford it, right? Okay. And now all of a sudden, you know, the carrier's like, I'm going to tender that 25,000 because it's really not enough to cover the case. And now the defense counsel goes to their client, they're insured and says, hey, do you have any other, any excess coverage? And the client says, no, I don't have excess coverage. So the attorney asks the client for an affidavit and no excess coverage. So for those who don't know what that is, all it is is an affidavit that says, I don't have any excess coverage. This is all I have. And then they send that to the plaintiff and the plaintiff says, okay, that's what they got. That's all we can take is 25, sell the case, release everybody and you're out. But what they forgot to look at was that the parents have policies that could potentially cover that kid and potentially cover that 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 accident, right? They could have umbrella policies or excess policies that the parents have, mm -hmm. and and the thing is that you know you're asking a layperson to determine whether they have excess coverage. I've made a career out of <laughs> excess coverage oh. and and priority of coverage, right? So. How do you ask a lay person to, to come to that conclusion? They're just using their logic to say, no, I don't have an excess policy. They don't even know what that really means. So, you know, I urge plaintiff's attorneys to be careful. Let's take another example. Now you have a, a commercial auto accident, right? So, and I actually have a case just going on right now. So you they, the defendant hands his case to his insurance company. His insurance company pay, says, okay, I have this limit and I'm going to pay out this limit in auto coverage and there's multiple claimants. And I know there's not enough. So here, let's split it up multiple claimants. And they do. They ask the insured for a copy of an, affid for an affidavit and no excess coverage. And he says, yeah, I don't have any excess coverage. And he signs off. Well, lo and behold, it's determined that he actually has two other insurance policies that may apply, and in my opinion, arguably apply to this case, right? So that's missed by everybody. The, the, the plaintiffs missed it, 
the defendants missed it, the insured missed it. And, and that's because everybody, they're not thinking outside the box. They're thinking, oh, an auto, an auto policy. And I'm going to give you one little nugget and one little tip today. General liability policies do cover autos. Mm. There's very specific circumstances and specific things and steps that need to be done in order to get the coverage, but there could be coverage. So I think leaving money on the table is one of the biggest issues that I see with you know with the the plaintiff's bar um in this respect and you know on the when the comprehensive insurance disclosure act was passed they tried to address some of these things and like i said we'll do a cle a separate cle on it to try and help the plaintiffs um really navigate through this um and i think it should be utilized and, and we'll talk about that as i said in the cle but um you know that's a couple of examples yeah. and well, so the question i have sorry to interrupt but the the question i have and maybe people listening have is how do you find that out then? You're the plaintiff, right? I bring a lawsuit against John Doe. Um, his carrier says, yep, it's a 25 policy. Uh, we get the affidavit. What can I do to find out if there's anything more? I mean, generally what we'll do is um, if it's a minimum policy or, or with most of our defendants where we think there may not be a sufficient coverage, we'll check them out. You know, we'll Google them. We can do an asset search, hire an investigator look at their home based on the police report with Google Earth. You can look and see, you know, are they living in a big house? Are they in a nice neighborhood? Um, or are they living in a, you know, a, a rental in a bad area? Um, but short of that, how can you find out? And how do you even have standing to dig deeper into that? Well, the the Comprehensive Insurance Disclosure Act gives them, gives you the right to get copies of all possibly applicable policies. So I, you know, anticipate that there's going to be litigation over that at some point in the future because the defendants are going to say, I'm not giving them that policy. That's not applicable. But who's to determine what's applicable? So, you know, and I think it's going to take the right case and the right coverage counsel to show the court that these policies could possibly be applicable. Um, but you are entitled to it. And, you know, I don't know whether, you know, maybe there's a system that that we can develop uh together sort of to prepare almost like a um you know a, a questionnaire that has to be responded to i don't want to say interrogatories because you know in plaintiff's cases you can't have depositions and you know the in, and bill particulars and interrogatories but something that would allow us to and maybe in the discovery and inspection notices something that would allow us to be more specific and inquire into whether or not there are possibly other policies maybe asking for copies for the identity of any other individuals that reside in the same household that have vehicles you know wow. something like that um i think that that would be appropriate in my case that other case that's a commercial case so that case it was really just everybody thought the auto policy was it but when we looked at the policies it's my opinion, and we're still in the middle of litigation, but it's my opinion that there are other policies that apply. So um, I think, I think Rosa, in any case that anyone has as a plaintiff involving a commercial vehicle, you know, a painter's van, a moving truck, whatever it may be, that um, not only do men demand the auto policy, but demand copies of their general liability policies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Demand copies of the policies and and, you know, depending upon the circumstances, there could even be other other policies. I mean, I have one of the cases I have, it's an employer liability policy. And, and, you know, those cases, everybody thinks, so that just covers the employer. 
when they're liable, but there's circumstances where that might apply. So, you know, you have to ask for the policies because many of the policies are different. I mean, typical auto policies, you know, that cover me or you for our cars have a lot of standard provisions, but the, a lot of the carriers add provisions to it. And particularly when you're not talking about standard auto, when you're talking about businesses, they have a lot more leeway to add provisions and endorsements and exclusions and exceptions. Yep. And some of these policies, you you wouldn't believe what they, they give and then what they take away. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Now, I understand another area you're getting involved in, and we've talked about it, is being of counsel to other plaintiffs firms, which is something that we generally don't do. Can you talk about how that would work? Sure. Well, you know, I think again, it's it it takes it's going to take a plaintiff to have a case and reach out. I, I have a couple right now where they reached out because they're having a problem. They're they're one of the defendants is not covered, or there's an ex, a, a, a disclaimer as to one, or they're not going to cover. There's not enough coverage, and in that case, I try to work with the plaintiffs as best we can under the parameters of New York law because it is restricted. But I try to work with them and I have several um, different techniques that I use that I think haven't been used in the past on the from the plaintiff's perspective to determine, you know, what kind of insurance is out there or in a circumstance where the defendant doesn't have coverage and they're not responding. Right. There's there's a disclaimer because they're not responding, which that happens quite often. I think the plaintiffs need to take that case and they need to take charge of it and to try to figure out how to contact that defendant. Um, don't this is a, this, sorry, Rosa, just to understand, this is a situation where there is an insurance coverage available policy, but the potential defendant is ghosting the, their lawyers and the insurance company and not cooperating, which would then give the insurance company a basis to disclaim. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I can tell you that throughout my entire career, I have seen multiple times where these defendants, they're out there. It's its not an issue of that they're 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 gone. I mean, <clears throat> there's a case I have right now that I'm that I'm looking at where it's a huge organization and they're just not answering the defense. Now, you don't know from a plaintiff's perspective, what did the defendant ask for? What did they do? Did they make a phone call? Did they send an email? Did they send a letter? Did they send an investigator? Right. You don't know what they did. And you'd be surprised how many times it's just a letter. Wow. That's getting to nobody or an email that's getting to nobody. You know, so I think it's worthwhile in that circumstance. You, know, you have to really just you have to you know push on the cases. And, you know, that's where I come into play, because I don't think that the defendant's going to want to talk to the plaintiff's attorney. <laughs> you know, yeah. they want somebody that's going to assist them with coverage or, or say to them, hey, you know, call corporate counsel and say, hey, you know what? Something's going on here. Um, you know, what's going on with your company? You're 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 not answering the insurance company. And I think that, you know, for whatever reason, plaintiffs don't seem to do that. Um, and that's something we can certainly help with. And then we can help guide, um, you know, guide on the coverage issues that we're aware of. And, and I feel that in those circumstances, the defendant and the plaintiff are really aligned in with respect to coverage because you want the coverage and they want right. the coverage. Right. 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 That's fascinating. Yeah. Another area, Rosa, that I have found your help to, to really move cases and actually get cases settled is when you have policies where there's maybe a primary 
and an excess or more than one policy, um, you've been helpful that you can review these policies and say, wait a second, you know, there's something in, in the excess policy saying that if the demand jumps up higher than the primary, then the excess must be notified. They must, you know, there's all these different trigger provisions that many plaintiffs don't know about because they don't take the time to read the policies. And then we'll say, hey, let's send a letter to the excess saying, you know, here's how we evaluate the case and here's our demand. And it appears the demand goes into your policy limits. Um, and it's enough. It, my understanding is it, it sort of, I say, you know, it shakes the, the trees, the branches. It, it makes it makes them have to do something, right? They have to write it up. They have to report. There has to be a dialogue. And as plaintiffs, if you can get a conversation started between two carriers about settling a case or get an excess carrier to put pressure on a primary carrier, that's a tool that we have in our toolbox that I don't think is used uh, enough, yeah, right? I agree. I agree. And I think that one of the things that I also have seen over the years is that the plaintiff, it's not just the plaintiffs, the defendants do it too. Everybody overlooks the excess policies, right? They they just, I don't know what it is. And they, they don't think about it. Maybe in the smaller cases, they don't think about it. But it's important to think about it because, you know, you need to make sure that you get in that disclosure what the primary is, what the excess is. And, and particularly in those construction litigation cases, don't forget to place the excess carrier on notice. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I think is really um, going to come into play in the next couple of years is that if you look at these general liability policies, right there, for the most part, they're a million dollars. And they've been a million dollars for my mm. entire career. Maybe you'll see a $2 million one, maybe. Um, and then there are all these umbrella products that they sell on top of the other, on um, top of the primary policies. But the when you think about it, especially in the construction litigation context, a million dollars in today's day and age is not going to cover the injury that these innocent workers are sustaining. So you are going to be into those excess layers almost definitely on these cases, unless it's a very minor, minor injury. And I think it's very important to bring the excess carrier into the picture right away, into the negotiations right away, because they want the case settled within the primary limits as well. Right. So if there's a possibility that your case can get settled within those primary limits, it's important to enlist the excess carrier to help you in that regard and maybe get on the same page. Like, yeah, we know, you know, we're willing to accept the million, but, you know, if this thing goes any further, we're not or whatever the, the number is. So, you know, it's extremely important to make sure that you have all the layers and don't assume that because something says it's excess then it's excess <laughs> because, because as I've said, I've made a career out of priority of coverage and there's a lot of priority of coverage issues in the commercial general liability world. And you would think that these policies are excess when sometimes they're not. Sometimes huh. they're all, they're, they're pro rata, they share. And that brings in, you know, that brings in more coverage right away on the first layer. Um, and more pressure to settle as well, because now these these carrier that was saying they were excess, no, you're not excess. You're you're pro rata, and so you should be sharing with uh, with the other carriers. So these are all things that we need to analyze in every individual case. It's super important, and I guarantee you uh, that the plaintiffs who are currently practicing 
probably if they were to look in their files and look at the discovery responses from the defendants to their demand for insurance disclosure, probably 95% of those disclosures are just going to be two lines. So-and-so is insured by such and such insurance company with limits of X and limits of that. And then that goes in the file and then they leave it. And no one asks for the policies. And whether you're in federal court, state court, you are entitled to these policies. So the big takeaway is get them, get, find them, get them, read them. And if you need help interpreting them, then get a coverage counsel. And that's what you do, right? Right, Rosa? And it's, it's kind of nice. And I've done that. I get these hundreds of pages of policies and I can forward them to Rosa and be like, do we have something here? Because reading all this is like reading a foreign language to most people because there is a lot of endorsements and technical details and and sometimes you just you know you can really get lost in the weeds in these and i in your experience having read so many of them you know what to filter out what's the nonsense and what the the true uh important points are right right and under the now under the insurance disclosure act they're required to give you the policy unless you stipulate so it's actually the opposite now. They're there you they have to get us and there and I I don't know I I haven't seen anybody stipulating to anything in any of these right. cases. I think right. everybody's just kind of going under the old rule and saying yeah they know they're entitled to the policy but I don't need it. But you know I truly recommend that just get the policies. It's a, a PDF that you're going to get into your inbox. You know and, and nowadays it's not that you know you're not you're not going to have to handle a, a you know a 500 page document and. Just take a look at it for limits and see if it if there's anything in there that you know that helps your case in terms of the limits and and you know it's just really really important especially in the cases where you have multiple multiple parties it's important. It's interesting, you know. I'm I'm never one to shy away from talking about things that I don't know because I certainly don't know a lot more than I do know. And as I always say, my CLEs and and my podcasts, my presentations, I share what I know, you know, and that's all I can do. But I don't profess to know everything. And I frankly did not know until you told me about this Comprehensive Insurance Act. Can you tell us, is it a state act? Is there a name that people can Google to look it up to find out how, because I'm sure people are sitting there saying, I've never heard of this either. So relax, everybody. I didn't know it either. You're not missing out on something, but we all need to know this now. And I strongly recommend that if you are either plaintiff or if you have cross claims as a defendant, you need to put in your demands, uh, a demand for disclosure pursuant to, and then quote the act by name, by title, uh, and even maybe some details within the act uh, if need be. Well, here's here's one of the things. It was an amendment to 3101 of the Civil Practice Laws and Rules. Really? So, so yes. So if you pull up in um, CPLR 3101, all the new provisions are in there. And okay. so it become a disclosure requirement. Now, you know, one of the problems with that is that just like with everything else in New York State with disclosure, they don't give it to you. What's your recourse? You have to make a motion, right? However, in this particular case, I think that if if it's pursued enough, that it will become standard for those things to be disclosed as opposed to the way it is right now. I think it's just that people aren't aren't pursuing it. And yeah. there's really no there's really no penalty unless huh. unless like 
like everything else in 3101, right? If someone doesn't provide you with a discovery response, you have to battle it out with the attorney and then you have to make a motion if you want a court order. So my recommendation is you ask for it. When they don't disclose that within the 90 days that they're supposed to, then you call your colleague, right? And I find, you know, you and I, Andrew, I think we operate the same way. I find it's just open dialogue. I call the defendant and I say, hey, you know, listen, I'm entitled to the policy. Will you please send it to me? And, and, They'll send it to you. I, I, yeah. I truly, they'll send it to you. I don't think you're going to have to make your motion, but I think that you may have to ask for it because it's yeah. not standard. That's a great point. And we do that uh, as a matter of course, when we get those, you know, two line responses, just giving the insurance company and the policy limits, um, we immediately reel off a letter saying, thank you for your disclosure. Uh, please provide us with the entire policy uh, as that's what we've demanded. And usually we get it. And I think, like you just said, that if you're in litigation and you reach out to an adversary and you share with them, you know, maybe say, hey, if you want, I'll email you the amendment to 3101, which shows you have to give it to us. I think usually most reasonable lawyers and there's a, there's a few of us out there who aren't reasonable, but I think most are. And I think if you show them that there's a law that they have to do it, they're required, that they'll say they may run back and speak to someone else that they work with and say, do you do we have to do this? Someone will say, yeah, you have to. And also, if you put it in a letter, the request or an email, that will also help you if ultimately you have to make motion practice, because then it looks bad if um, you, know, you do a follow-up letter saying, I've asked you for this, you're required to give it, here's my last good faith attempt, I'd rather not have to make a motion, and then you annex those letters to the motion, and then the judge will see that you did everything the right way. You asked for it, you're entitled to it, and then you know probably once you make that motion, you'll get it. Usually, the only the only time I see any pushback is they'll often like to redact you know premium information, which is fine. We don't care how much they paid for it, so you can redact how much they're paying in premiums. We just want to see the language of the policy, uh, so we can see whether it applies to the case, right? Right. And there's other requirements. So I do urge everybody to pull up uh, insurance law 3101D. It's, it's, you know, you could Google it. You don't even need Wessel or, or Lexus yeah. for that. And really, uh, it's, there's a lot of other requirements. They have to give you the um, um, the name. And I believe, I, I think it's the telephone number of the adjuster on the case, right? Which that's huh. another, another yeah. issue. You know, in the years past, right, you you just you would struggle with that. You wanted to get to the adjuster so you could see if there's any way you could settle a case or resolve a case. And you just couldn't get that information. And this basically requires the disclosure. So there was wow. a little confusion, and just so everybody's aware, um, when the when the legislation first came out, um, or there was at least it was it was being voted on. Um, there was some back and forth about what the terminology was going to be, and when it got to the governor, she didn't sign it because she wanted a clarification of some of these areas, and then it was clarified. And some of the provisions were um, amended. So just be careful out there when you're Googling, because some of the laws before uh, January of last year, um, that what, that's out there, the research and stuff on the internet is wrong. Okay. <laughs> so look at the current statute. Yeah. That's really an interesting point. You know, talk about it just, it, I have to share this uh, story anecdotally. I had a case where defense counsel was nice enough guy. We got along great. Uh, it was a case that needed to be settled and should have been settled, and he agreed, but he kept saying, yeah, I'm following up with the carrier. You know, he's blaming it all on the carrier, and rightfully or wrongfully, I have no idea, 
But he kept saying, I'll follow up, I'll follow up. And this was going on for like a year. And I would pester him because that's what good plaintiff's lawyers do is they pester their adversaries. But I never had the carrier's direct information. So I said to him, look, you know, can you just give me the carrier's information? I'll pester them because they're not getting back to you. He's like, well, they'd rather go through me and that whole thing. And then he started blowing me off. And I'm sitting here saying, I want to move my case. It's a case that should be moved. It's got very good value and it's worth it on the merits, but I can't get this lawyer to return my call. So I did like a whole deep dive all the way back to when we very first filed a a letter, putting them on notice uh, of the case. And I found a claims rep uh, originally called them up and I was like, I don't think you're on this case anymore, but can you look in your file? Oh, sure. This is so-and-so. And I was like, is there a supervisor you see there? Yeah, this is the supervisor. And can I just confirm the claim numbers? Next thing you know, I start shooting emails out to both of these claims representatives, the supervisor and the one assigned saying, you know, we're trying to get this resolved. Unfortunately, I'm just not hearing back from counsel. And I did the, the lawyer, the courtesy of saying, listen, If I don't hear back from you, I'm just going to try and reach out myself. You know, I didn't go behind his back and he didn't respond to me. So I copied him on the email and I said, you know, I haven't heard back in this case. It should be settled. And I and I spelled it all out. And I I just find it to be rude, frankly, that you're not even just giving me the courtesy of a response. And sure enough, the supervisor emailed immediately. I'm so sorry. And it became very clear to me that they weren't getting as much communication from defense counsel and uh, they jumped into it and I got the case resolved within a month or so of starting all of that. So that's, that's great. I didn't know that as well, that they're required to give you this. So um, that's a great, great tip for everybody. Yeah. There's there's other, there's a, there's many other provisions in there. You know, it's something to definitely read and, uh, and, you know, I think that with contacting the the claims people, one of the important things to, to keep in mind is, you know, in a, when you're a plaintiff, you're, you don't represent, the, the insurance company's not represented, the defendant's represented. So you're allowed to talk to the carrier. Now, when you're in the coverage world and you're in a declaratory judgment action, that's a different story. Once the carrier's involved in the case and there's a litigation pending, then, you know, we can no longer talk to the carrier directly because they're represented, right? But there's no, um, there's no rule against you contacting the claims people to resolve it. And I find that, that, you know, sometimes they're thankful that you are doing it. Everybody's busy, um, you know, and it's it, sometimes it's good to hear from the plaintiffs and make make a relationship with these people too, you know, and um, and resolve your case. You can get phone numbers. I mean, I find that now on the internet, you can get a phone number for these insurance companies. You can get right to their claims department. You can ask who's handling claim numbers such and such, and they're going to get you to a person. So, and they'll at least get you a phone number or at least get you an email that you can send something to. So I really think that besides the fact that now they have to disclose some of that information, I think you could also find it out if you need to. Awesome. Awesome. Rosa, just a few more things before we wrap up. One of the things I want to ask you, which many of you know, I I do my one-on-ones up to almost 200 one-on-ones in the last like two years of meeting with lawyers. And, and I always ask lawyers, you know, what do they like to do when they're not practicing law? You know, what do you do for fun? Because, you know, law is just our day job, so to speak, right? And we all have very interesting backgrounds. So Rosa, why don't you share with us, what do you like to do when you're uh, enjoying your your quality time? Oh, well, in the spring and summers and fall, 
We are avid boaters, as you know, so we spend a lot of time on our boat, a lot of time out on the Great South Bay, where we live on the South Shore. And, uh, and Long Island, for those who yeah. don't know. Yes. Yep. yes, that's right, Long Island. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, I get out there my, my, with my husband on a boat, I go fishing. <laughs> cool. Very and, cool. Uh, do, you, do you like deep sea fishing, uh, big stuff? Yeah, I, yes, yeah. So he likes to go further out than I do, but yes. <laughs> it's really incredible. It's beautiful when you get out there. You see dolphins, you see whales, you see things that you wouldn't think you would see on Long Island. And it's, wow. it's really it's beautiful. One little skip over to Fire Island for a, a, a two hours after work and you feel like you were on vacation. So, you know, that's my big thing. And my other hobby is my family and my kids and just spending time with everybody. And that's, you know, that's what we love to do. That's awesome. And as as my uh, loyal following podcast listeners know, uh, whenever I do an interview, I always like to wrap it up by asking uh, the attorney who I'm interviewing, in this case, you, can you tell me in your mind, how do you define what it means to be a great lawyer? So I define it with three characteristics. The first one is professionalism, right? Don't attack the lawyer, attack the argument, right? I see lawyers attacking other attorneys in papers, and I think that's just terrible. Um, the second characteristic is trust your judgment. Right. If you something doesn't seem right, you're probably right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah, trust your judgment. And and the last thing is, listen, listen to your client, listen to your adversary, listen to your colleagues, because you learn from listening, not from talking. <laughs> and I think that's almost one of the most important aspects of being a good lawyer is is listening to everybody. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And. Obviously, I think you're a great lawyer, fantastic lawyer, and honored to have you carrying uh, the Smiley and Smiley banner with you now and the Mentor banner and uh, really excited for our future uh, working together with you being a part of the firm. If listeners want to reach out to you or maybe pick your brain, uh, can you tell us how they can go about doing that? Sure, they can send me an email. The email's out right right there under the mentor. And um, I also have an opportunity to do one-on-one. So um, we have a 15-minute one-on-ones that you can sign up for. And um, and I can I can respond to that email and give you the link to the one-on-one so that we can um, hook up and have a Zoom and talk and, and uh, hopefully get to meet a lot of you. And I'm looking forward to it. And those are, of course, complimentary to members of the profession. 15 minutes, they can pick your brain on whatever they like, right? Exactly whether it's coverage issues or fishing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And if um, if you're listening and you're not near a computer, uh, the links to contact Rosa will be in the podcast description. So when you have a chance, take a look at the description. Rosa's email will be there. And her email is rfeeney, R-F-E-E-N-E-Y at smileylaw.com. And there will also be a scheduling link or a complimentary 15-minute Zoom uh, in the description if you'd like to have 15 minutes to run a scenario by Rosa or talk about boating on Long Island or whatever else you'd like to talk about. And uh, Rosa, I just want to thank you uh, for everything you do and um, for sharing your knowledge with us and uh, with the profession and uh, look forward to you getting more involved with the Academy. And we've talked about some CLEs that we're hoping you'll be able to put forward and um and thanks for spending the time chatting with me. It was great having you here. Well, thank you, Andrew. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. And thank you all for listening uh, to the Mentor ESQ podcast. I really appreciate uh, your 
your trust in the podcast and listening. And I, and I do often get great feedback from everybody. I'd love to hear from you. So feel free to reach out to me anytime. Schedule one-on-one with me. You can do that right through the Mentor ESQ website. If you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, not only would I love to hear back from you, but I'd really appreciate it if you just took a moment, go online and give us a good review and rating. Uh, that really helps to spread the word. And I wish you all a great day. And I think the next time you'll be hearing from me, uh, we'll be talking more about litigating medical mal- medical malpractice cases. That'll be following up soon. So thank you all. And I'll speak to you soon. Bye now.